you become only eyes, because you now no longer have a way of sensing where your body is. And not only do you only become eyes, but you're also experiencing tunnel vision. And so when you enter weightlessness and start to develop the skills which will be necessary to become a competent movement artist in that environment, you have to first figure out how to re-inhabit your body and how to come back from just being eyes and realize that you have a head and find out where your arms are and have some idea about where your arm is, say, when it's behind your back. Because, you know, right now on Earth... Probably everybody listening to this is on Earth, right? They're all waving and, your arm. <laughs> yeah, you put your arm behind your back, and, and what is it that tells you where your arm is? It's, it's the, the tension weight. in your shoulder, yeah. right? It's a, the torque in your arm, elbow. It's, it's a lot of things that are all gravitationally oriented. And so you have to come with a totally new set of skills. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I talk with movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This episode features Adam Diapert, and I've waited far too long to get to say this title, Space Juggling, Physics, and Changing Your Perspective. Adam Diapert is a postdoctoral research scholar in physics at North Carolina State University and has wowed audiences as a professional circus performer for nearly 20 years. He started studying human movement in weightlessness in preparation for his first parabolic flight in 2016. And since then, he's logged countless hours exploring the frontiers of microgravity flow in pools, aerial harnesses, flotation tanks, wind tunnels, and airplanes. In addition to developing a new suite of dance moves for outer space, he has exercised remarkable restraint, not asking NASA for permission to spin fire on the International Space Station. This episode is far out and far ranging. Adam and I managed to coordinate a recording session with little advance notice, and then we proceeded to go wide and deep on like circus stuff, juggling physics, mathematics, and movement in weightlessness. Finally, since I clearly cannot cram the visuals into the audio, you simply must float over to Adam's website, thespacejuggler.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining me. I should say, actually, thanks for letting me join you. I, I think I have problems. I'm super excited because we have a list of like characters that we want to like collect. And you're on the list because somebody else that we really value their opinion mentioned you. And unfortunately, we thought you were in Arizona. And then I'm down here and the person that I'm talking to says, no, no, I, Adam's here. So it was like we put this together in like three hours of notice. And despite my horrible navigation skills in earlier in the day, here we are. So I, I think, okay, first of all, physics geek, I love, like I'm super interested in physics. But I think most people would just like go, excuse me, say that again. If I say space juggling and I... It, it, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, that looks like it's um, not kitschy, but like, oh, it's a, a thing. Like, I mean, I know you're, I've heard that you're a really good juggler, so space juggling kind of sounded like marketing, but no, no. When I started reading and looking into it, I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. So the, the question that I have, I'm notorious for rambling. The question that I have is, did you, was it like your love of juggling that made you realize there was the opportunity to dig into the concepts of movement and trajectories in zero G or, or did that come out of physics or like, what was the, the magical ingredient pile that, that led you to this really interesting project? Yeah, I, um, so I was a circus performer prior to starting this project 
and I also uh, was a physicist prior to starting this project. And I got really inspired to do a zero-g flight, and my first one was in 2016. And when I wondered what it was that I would need to know in order to be an efficient and competent movement artist in weightlessness, I realized I didn't have an answer. <laughs> you know? how, how long is the weightlessness in, in those parabolic between 20 to 30 seconds, and um, you do 15 parabolas in the U.S. with the ZRG Corporation. Uh, the first first one is Mars, the second and third are lunar gravity, and then you do 12 ZRG. And then I also got to go on a um, research flight, so I've done 58 parabolas total. Wow. Which, you know, a NASA astronaut would do that in one yeah, <laughs> one. one thing, yeah. one flight, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so... When I started wondering, like, what is it that I need to know? Because when I watch videos of other people moving, it's like a lot of either repetition of what divers do. Um, if you watch, like, Skylab videos, you, do you know Skylab, yeah, the, yeah. Um, the station from the 70s, right? Um, you know, they, they're doing a lot of, like, diver things, like high diver types yeah, of things. Yeah, tucks and backflips. And... Yeah, exactly. Um, or people just have no idea what to do, and they just spent $5,000 and are just flopping around in an airplane. It's fun. <laughs> somebody I mean, grabs them by the pants. Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah, no judgment. You know, it's cool if that's how you want to spend your money. But I would like am more into being prepared for it. And so I was kind of reading some, like, NASA articles about people's experiences, and I found this really interesting one where they were talking about people trying to jump from one end of the airplane to the other end of the airplane. And when they did this, they actually ended up rotating every time. And it was always just a little bit of rotation one way or a little rotation the other way. And so I do experimental physics. And my method is to be like, okay, if something's going to happen, just like lean into it, make it happen. Then you can figure out how to ease back on oh, it, I right? Control like, that. Yeah, once you get it understood, then now you have like a gas pedal. You can choose how much you're going to get. So, I, okay, rotations. That was that was my target. And um, the human body is super complicated, and so are rotations. And so I wrote a computer program to simulate the human body where I have a fully articulated human body and it calculates the dynamic axes around which it can rotate. How many double, double pendulums is that? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a, so uh, I, I think I'm it has a, 17 limb or, you know, 17 segments or something. 17 segments. Yeah. So there's this horrible problem. I'm, I'm a physics guy. I mean, Adam and I were talking before. And so, but for everybody else who like doesn't realize how complex that would be. There's a classic meaning, it's been around for hundreds of years, physics problem of you hang a pendulum, just a, an arm with a weight on it, and there's some simple mathematics that describes in a gravity field, like on Earth, how would that pendulum swing, and then grandfather clocks. And then they come along and they say, what happens if you hang a second pendulum off of the first pendulum? And Adam's shaking his head like, yeah, the shit hits the fan. It turns out that two pendulums, if my memory serves, it's not solvable. Like there are ways you can do like stupid, you know, one of them is really long and one's really short. And it's like, yeah, now you're back to the one pendulum problem. So when you said you <laughs> built a model, my brain went, wait, my elbows move in two dimensions. Pendulums swing in one plane. So you have these two dimensional. I'm like, yeah, that's. Just, I mean, you're going to tell me, oh, it was easy to write, but that, just building that model, um, and then I'm guessing that model, obviously it has to compute 
another thing in classical mechanics is you can integrate the shape and mass distribution of the body and you can compute where's the center of mass where's how is my torque going to apply on this but you would have to have that program do all of that finite element analysis i'm guessing in real time and okay so how, how long did that take like from when you i need this tool to when you had a tool that worked for that probably it was probably three months or something like that it was really it was the time to figure out what data i needed to input you know, like reliable data, because you have to have like the center of mass of every single limb as well as its and its mass. Right. And then put all of that together in a geometry and then find the center of mass of the whole body. And, you know, and it just right. goes layer and layer. And so it took me a long time to kind of like get all the details together. But then once I had them all, I, it was like it was probably 12 hours of coding. You know, it, it wasn't unbearable, but it was detailed. And, it, you yeah, know, and only because you knew was, what you were building. And like. I knew what I was doing. You know, in, in a way, if you're a physicist and you know the track, yeah. then like, th- in a way, this wasn't an incredibly complicated thing other than it's super monotonous and you got to go through and get every single detail right in every single line of the code. And, you know, it really, <laughs> it really is non... No, yeah, I, not I know. Not forgiving. Not forgiving, Yeah. And so what's funny is that the way that rotations are guided, you know, you you made a statement that how does the torque interact with the body, right? And torque is like when you apply a force that right. causes rotation. There's a, a an idea called moment of inertia. And if you think about something simple like your phone, then, you know, the moment of inertia ends up being, for any three-dimensional object, actually, the moment of inertia ends up being kind of easy to break down into three individual directions in relationship to the body. And so in the case of your phone, the three directions that you would think of are like, if you're looking at the screen, the direction that comes straight out of the screen, then if you uh, look at it from the short end so that you see the minimum amount of cross-section, it's the uh, direction that's facing you. And then if you turn it to the side and you look at you know, look at it on from the side and the direction that's facing you then. So those are three directions that are all perpendicular to each other, right? Right. And those are what we call the, the moment of inertia eigenvectors or the principal axes. So what I, and um, why those are important is that if you're rotating around the face of the phone, the screen, then it's a nice stable rotation. And you could even toss your phone up and, and experience that. If you rotate it around the short axis, like the, the side that you look at and you see the smallest cross-sectional area, then that's a stable axis. But if you throw it any other way, it's going to wobble. And so what I wanted to figure out was, where are those axes on my body? And how do they change when I move my arm and legs and all of these things around? And head. Like, I, yeah. I gotta believe, like, the... So sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, you, you kind of had this idea that maybe I was doing that in real time, but really what I ended up finding was the usefulness of it was to basically give myself an array of images so that I could have, like, a dictionary of where are these axes, and if I'm spinning around some axis... How is it that I can change the orientation of my limbs so that I can get different behaviors out of the rotation that I already had? Hmm. And if this is not sounding clear, it's because it's an incredibly complicated topic that even physicists usually do not understand. Um, Whenever I give a talk to physicists about this, they're just like, wow, yeah, you're right. I don't know anything about rotations, even um, though I have a PhD. Uh, <laughs> you know? I don't know a PhD, and I'm keeping up. I always think when when people when you talk about um, primary and secondary, like which are the stable ones, 
And objects do weird things. Like if they're like, Gaspard Coriolis did a whole book in French, which was recently translating to English, on uh, the theory, the jeu de billiard. It's the math about billiard balls, not just the caroms, but also how angular momentum plays in. And it, it lays out exactly how to shoot, you know, those magical curve shots. It lays yeah. it out. The, for people listening, the final track after the ball has curved will be parallel to a very easily determined thing about how you base, how you point the cue. So there's like one whole degree of confusion that you can eliminate. I know the final trajectory. I just don't know where on the table exactly. So there's these super complicated physics concepts. Sometimes you can shake out some of it, but it still becomes an art to find exactly how much or you know which way it's going to go. My favorite visual representation is, uh, I think it's called a bolo or a bolus. It's a three-weighted thing on three strings. I think it's from South America. You, you grab it by the three strings or tied in a knot, and the three weights are like hanging down like a pendulum, and you spin it over your head, and it, like, you can picture doing this with a brick. It's real easy. Well, when you throw it and let go of it, it goes in a straight line, but if you've ever seen one thrown, it does something very interesting. Like in a short time, the three weights go to a lower rotation speed and they go in three as best they can opposite directions and they put the knot in the perfect center and they spin like the blades of a helicopter and the first time i saw that i was like wait what like i mean why don't the three balls just go in a straight line off the tangent but they're and the answer is angular momentum but it's just so interesting to see something change like why does a frisbee never randomly flip over in flight well because that's its primary moment is the way that you throw it sorry off on a off on a geek tangent about physics yeah i think the frisbee example is a a really easy one to understand because if you look at the the face of the frisbee right that's when you see the most area and so that axis that's pointing toward your face when you're looking at the the largest part that's the most stable axis Mm -hmm. and so that's what i was trying to find were one of the things I was trying to yeah. find. Yeah. So I'm going to guess that you were successful in figuring out, at least to some extent, if I'm if I'm experiencing a certain type or amount of rotation. You like one obvious one is you know on a bar stool or ice skaters. But are there ways that you can, uh, you know, like I'm trying to do strange semaphore, lady. You know, <laughs> can you move your arms in a certain way to flip up to a different moment to convert and like that, but. Like, I would assume that would be reproducible because it's just, just air quote, physics. So were you successful in taking what you learned from the model and then training yourself with images? And then did it actually, like, I know the physics would work, but were you able to perform that yeah. in, in flight? Yeah, and I, um, I did more than just make the model. I, like I said, I'm an experimental physicist, so I'm all about doing all the things that I can to prepare for it. And so I did... Uh, I've done a lot of indoor skydiving. Um, I've done a lot of float tanks, you know, like the sensory mm-hmm. deprivation chambers, uh, aerial harnesses, worked in pools. I really am going as prepared as possible, you know, done all of the what we'd call analog environments. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have done rotations where I intentionally changed the axis that I was rotating around in mid-flight. And that felt like a really big success. Um, what does it feel like when you do that? Like, because uh, we were talking, sometimes I have trouble remembering, were we recording? I think before we were recording, we were talking about how such a fundamental effect gravity is on proprioception. So you remove that, and then when you, like when you're spinning, that has a certain feeling. But what does it feel like when you, you know, reorient limbs or something so that it changes where the moment is? Is that just, I guess it's got to be disorienting, but like, 
does it feel like when you make the change, does it feel like now it's wrong? And then when your body reorients, does it feel more right? Or like, I'm just curious, like, what is the visceral experience of that? Well, that is a, a many podcasts question. <laughs> <laughs> like um, a five-minute version? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and first, I, I just want to bring in somebody's name, uh, Kitsu Dubois, and she's a French choreographer and dancer. And she has been studying zero-G dance since 1990. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to work with her. And um, I really look up to her. And so she's done, I think, 21 flights and worked with dancers and circus artists on those Ooh. flights to develop work. And her description of what happens is that when you lose your gravitational experience, then, you know, you're not... You're no longer feeling your feet pressing on the floor. You're not feeling your butt on the seat, your back on, you know. Yeah, or your organs. You don't realize how your organs pull inside. Yeah, yeah. Or your vestibular system, right? Your autoliths and your semicircular canals that are in your ear, which tell how, you know, how fast your head is moving linearly or rotating. So Kitsu, and I I just have to give her credit for this because it's the right way, yeah, (laughs) is um, is that you become only eyes, because you now no longer have a way of sensing where your body is. And not only do you only become eyes, but you're also experiencing tunnel vision. And so when you enter weightlessness and start to develop the skills which will be necessary to become a competent movement artist in that environment, you have to first figure out how to re-inhabit your body and how to come back from just being eyes and realize that you have a head and find out where your arms are and have some idea about where your arm is, say, when it's behind your back. Because, you know, right now on Earth, probably everybody listening to this is on Earth, <laughs> right? all waving and, your arm. <laughs> yeah, you put your arm behind your back. And, and what is it that tells you where your arm is? It's, it's the, the tension weight. in your shoulder, yeah. right? It's a, the torque in your arm, elbow. It's, it's a lot of things that are all gravitationally oriented. And so you have to come with a totally new set of skills, and you have to discover them. And are you familiar with contact improvisation? Oh my God, yes. Contact improv met parkour and had this beautiful baby called Parkon. And there, there is a subset of parkour people who like, they, they literally took contact improv and they do it in environments with PSOIM. And many people listening might be, but do contact improv, please. <laughs> yeah, I am. I really, really enjoy contact improv. And I... Um, have spent a lot of time doing that. And one of the exercises that I've learned through it is called navel radiation. And that's where you, you're usually laying on the ground on your back. And then um, you sense from usually around your belly button or so out through your structure to the extension of your arm, the extension of your leg, the extension of your tail and your head, you know, like the six limbs all the way out. And uh, that's kind of become what I think of as where my movement comes from when I'm in weightlessness is I'm, I've been trying to get better at tuning into where my actual center of mass is hmm. and then using my body as the extension and as the measurement of space from that location. And it's, it's really weird because I've done things like d- d- yoga in weightlessness, like where I was stretching to grab my legs or something. And even stretching just feels totally different. different. And um, I just went, wait, yoga, W-A-I-T, wait a minute, yoga, the, the gravity is such a, I mean, like, just think about corpse pose. How would you do, like, the whole point of that is not just to relax, but also to feel all the parts of your 
body like melting or grounding. I'm not, I'm not much of a yogi, but you know, from what I understand that, and to take that away, I was like, Oh, that's a whole nother. Now I'm having <laughs> my brains like running off on a tangent of like, Oh man, there are like whole giant wedges of our culture, like not just Western culture, but global culture that are going to change when we become a space, you know, a space inhabiting species. And I, I don't just mean like, yeah, we're going to learn to play musical instruments differently because you can have the bump, the drums be all around you. But like the things that we think of as like, well, you should just go do some meditation or you should just go, just go for a walk. I'm like, eh, it doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah. And in that, in the case that you were describing in particular, the corpse pose, you know, where you're like Shavasana, is that what you're thinking yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The astronauts actually have a, often a lot of trouble sleeping. And one of the reasons is that you get to the end of your day and you, you don't lay in bed. Right. You know, you don't collapse anywhere. Now you're just not working as hard moving, and there's no moving. physical transition, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's a really important key to it is identifying the difference between what information is integrating into our systems as humans on the earth, which come directly from the environment mm. and which ones are actually fundamental to humanness. And I hadn't been asking these questions prior to starting this investigation. And I, you know, there's these ideas about a speciation where species that go to different environments then evolve in different ways. And that, you know, eventually if we choose and work hard and continue on the path to space habitation, then people are going to experience a speciation and there's going to be people who grow up in different environments that have different things. But I think it's like really important to keep in mind that it's actually the lines of consistency that are possibly what is human and that the the inconsistencies, although they're beautiful and, you know, I want to appreciate them, you know, maybe that's like not actually the fundamental part that is humanness. And so let me, let me just like do an example. So think about a person in a body. Are they standing, sitting, walking, climbing, whatever? Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I thought you meant it rhetorically. Yes. Uh, my brain just went, okay, I'm a person and I'm sitting. That was what I was thinking when you, so yes, the person I was imagining was sitting so your person is in a gravitational environment. Right. So gravity has an influence on your concept of what a human is. And I just don't think that's necessary. And we're at a stage where we're really finally ready to like learn about this and to, to you know, continue asking. You know, we've been asking for a really long time, what is human, <laughs> right? right? And, and right. people are interested in this. But only for the last 70 years have we had a physically yeah, embodiable space, state, yeah. I guess 60 years, yeah, that is a human that's, you know, almost free of other environmental influences. Right. Of course, you still, you know, you want to be in air or water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you want to be very close Can to I a source. some oxygen, please? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, but that's, a, that's also an interesting question. The, the, I know that they use very low pressure in space, and that has a whole different effect on you. And I, I haven't scuba dove in quite some time, but when I did, I have done some, as, as far as you can go recreationally, done deep diving. Um, and there are issues with nitrogen narcosis. And it's like, we humans, like biologically, even when we want to play with the environment, it's a pretty narrow window. And, you know, that begs the questions, you know, what you're describing is like, well, what would happen to somebody who 
I think they use like four PSI, four pounds per square inch or something in like the state space station. It's very low pressure. It, it's point six. Point six. Geez, or point six um, atmospheres. Atmospheres. Oh, yeah. so that's like uh, seven or eight or nine, something like that. But like, how would that affect you? Like, you know, all those like, if you lived in that environment for a long period of time, and I, I know NASA does study those types of things, which leads me back to my original. Like, one of the first things I said was space juggling. <laughs> so if you've if you've gone to all of that, I don't mean this in a negative way. You've gone to all that trouble to build the model, to do the experimenting, and and then I'm now I'm guessing like the space juggling part of it is sort of like a oh I can also combine this what maybe at first seems completely separate passion of circus performance and juggling to make a visually spectacle. Like I think a lot of people would listen to this material, my podcast or your material in general and go like, yeah, okay, so what? And I mean, or they're the kind of person like me, like that's cool. But I'm just thinking what made you call it juggling? What made you create? And and this will be linked for sure in the show notes. There's a video you have to watch about what it looks like from one of the things that you've created based on all of this work that you've done. So did you did you start to do the visual juggling part of it just because you were curious about that? Or does that exemplify a particular aspect of the research? Yeah, so I had worked in a team and we, let's see. So I, I've done, as I mentioned, a lot of training in analog environments, just trying to figure out anything that I can that gives me a little insight about some part of it. And a couple of summers ago, my partner, she was working on her MFA in dance. I was just finishing my PhD, and we were like, you know what? Let's fly Kitsa Dubois to the United States uh, so that she can give us dance classes for a week. Uh, and Kitsu and I got invited to go to MIT Media Lab to give a talk at their um, space conference, which hey, was while awesome, you're right? here, right. Yeah. And so um, that kind of started this like, I don't know, six months or eight months of pretty intense zero-G study. Like, I, I, I do it all the time anyways. But then once we got Kitsu here, Kitsu just was like total download, all kinds of things I mm. wasn't thinking about. I <laughs> walked away from there just like I'm still learning about it. You know, I was still in a daze about what she taught us. And then my partner and we got um, up, we ended up doing the workshops at Smith College. So um, we invited some college students who are in the dance program there to come participate in it. So I got to see all these beautiful dancing bodies. You know, I I was like the least skilled person in the room for sure. So that was really awesome, right? To be around everybody look around. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so, um, so she just showed us all these things. And then after that, we did three months worth of training um, in Seattle where we were doing all of the analog environments, like, not on work, not doing anything. This is what I'm here to do. Three rehearsals yeah, a day right. in a studio, taking you no, know, you know, hours of taking notes afterwards. Abs- got to a place where I did um, uh, watsu. Uh, do you know what this is? Water shiatsu. Uh, no, I know what so, shiatsu is, but okay, keep okay. Going. So it's in a like 96 degree saltwater <laughs> pool with somebody massaging you while they're floating you in the water and this was midstream of this you know three-week immersion process and i came out of it not being able to write words about what my experiences were because they were so embodied and so physical that it was it was it was reaching i was reaching finally a primal state of of Mm. my embodied experience that it was like you know we i think you know 
there's a lot of confusion about where words are in our, in our, in our structure, yes. right? Yes, so I was like, oh, are we going anywhere near that? Go, we're not going to go yeah, there. What, where does language come from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, so we had that. Uh, then we had all the equipment, and I was just working with it. And I had, a couple of years earlier, been doing that, really working with my three-dimensional model that I was describing, Right. And when I had been working with that model, one of the things that I found was that the most stable way a human body can spin in a standing position is to spin in a cartwheel motion, yep. right, around their anterior-posterior axis. Yep. Not only is that the only way, you, or the most stable way, it is the only way that you can spin and always face in the same direction. Ooh, good point, because it's parallel to the axis of our vision, right? Yes, exactly. So, so I had, I had press that. pause and vi- figure that one out. Parallel to our axis, right? That, that's exactly, that's cool. Yeah. I hadn't realized, I mean, like the, the vision of the starfish or the cartwheel, I'm like, yeah, that's got to be the primary moment. But then I'm thinking, oh, I hadn't thought about the visual thing. Right. And I found that a lot of people hadn't thought about this visual thing. And you probably, the... Uh, my urge to face the microphone and the urge to turn my head are in competition, but you probably could move your head pretty much without affecting, like that would still be the primary moment. Whereas if I like turn into a ball or do really weird things with my limbs, I probably could move that, that primary moment. You can. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So you realize so I'm, that so I'm in my, uh, I'm in this three, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. Yeah, three week, <laughs> three week immersions, right. Or, or, you know, many, many months of like working really hard with my partner and everybody. And I had realized this thing with a uh, model and earlier that year, I had been talking with Story Musgrave. He's an astronaut. Who, yeah. Um, okay, I don't need... If <laughs> Sorry, you don't know I mean, Story Musgrave... People might not know his, but I'm just like, oh my God, you know him? That's <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> so, so he's the only astronaut who's been on all five... Of, who went on all five of the space shuttles. He worked on the Hubble Space Telescope. He became an astronaut in 1967. He, although he didn't graduate high school, is the astronaut with the most college degrees. Mm-hmm. Like, t- just absolutely... <laughs> phenomenal person and um, we're chatting and he's done a lot of dance in space and he was like you know adam something you might think about is that if you put a rope on a on a table and you wiggle the rope back and forth horizontally it moves in the same way as it would move in space and okay i didn't you know i hadn't thought about that that like you lay the rope on the table and you move it back and forth but now I'm, I'm, I'm in my hard practice time. I got all the information that I need, and I had the equipment, I had the model vision, and I had Story Musgrave's insight that things moving on horizontal surfaces move in the, the same, same way that they move in space. So I said, okay, I'm going to try to hang myself from the ceiling face down so that I can spin in the cartwheel motion, right? I have a, a swivel connected to me that's along my uh, anterior posterior axis, right? So that I can do the cartwheel. And I'm just going to try to roll balls on the ground because in space, balls would move in straight lines. And when you roll them on the ground, they move in straight lines. And I'm just going to see what it's like. Just see what happens. And so I gave myself a spin and I threw a couple of balls and I was super dizzy. But even after the first five minutes, it was like, there's something here. And I I don't know what it is, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep investigating it. And so I dedicated to do this every single week for six months without expectations, right? I think 
that in a learning environment and in a creativity environment, it's really important to have a no censorship phase. Yes, right. That's a very important scientific. That's a very important piece of the scientific method. Yes. Yeah, where you don't throw out bad ideas, you don't try to think you know what the good ideas are. You just take notes and see what comes out. You know, and I did that for six months, genuinely, and I just didn't expect. I just did. And at the end of six months, I had a bunch of patterns. And rather than spinning for five minutes and falling out of the harness, like <laughs> flopping Whoa. against the wall, yeah, <laughs> no, you know, my head spinning and everything, then I could do it for 10 minutes or something like that. And my head wasn't spinning when I was done. And then I was like, oh, I want to show somebody this. How is it that I show them this? And I talked to a friend and he said, oh, you know what? We should build you a platform so that you can hang above above a platform and then we can put the camera Camera underneath you. And of course, at first I was like, I should just find some place with a glass floor. Do you know what glass floors are? A bad idea. Nobody (laughs) does that. (laughs) So you have to build your own thing if you want it. And so, um, so yeah, I, I hung over a sheet and I pulled it tight and it's clear. And then I put the camera underneath me facing up and then I spun and I, I watched the video and I realized it was something pretty cool. You know, it, I was like, wow, I, nobody else is doing this kind of thing. So it's really novel. And that really, that is striking in our world this, these days, right? Because we're yes, so inundated uh, with done novelty. Everything. Yeah, we've exactly. Been, yes, like, <laughs> I haven't been to Jupiter yet, you know, like, but seriously. Okay, keep going, keep going. Yeah, and, um, and then I had actually... This was an interesting thing that I think most movement artists would probably identify with. First, I don't like watching videos of myself because it feels like not me because I can't control it. You know, mm-hmm. when I'm operating me, I get to make decisions. <laughs> you know, yeah. when I'm watching a video, agency is a key part of humanity. That's one thing I'm going to put up a stake in the ground. Agency. That's one thing. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't enjoy that most of the time. But there's stuff to be learned by watching videos mm-hmm. of yourself. And so when I'm throwing the balls on the ground, they're just rolling on the ground and they're moving in straight lines. But when I'm spinning, they don't look like they're moving in straight lines. So when I had been doing this initially, I was mentally bouncing back and forth between balls traveling in straight lines on and a like, fixed surface, right? Yeah, and trying to visualize the curves a little bit, but like not really knowing where to settle my consciousness in this frame, right? Because uh, you need a frame to work in. Like you need a map of the world and a map of your body, especially if you're doing <laughs> movement in it, right? And so I, um, I watched the video And when I watched this video from below, I thought, I wonder what would happen if I spin the camera so that it spins at the same speed that I'm spinning. And then I did that so that it looked like my head was just up the whole time. Yeah, the human starfish doesn't appear to be moving. Exactly. And the thing that the balls are rolling on, which you can't see because it's transparent from the camera, appears to be rotating when it's really the other way around. Exactly. and Which is called... A coordinate transformation. <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah. And so I um, I started seeing the balls moving in these curves. And that was... The when you look at the video. When you look at the video. Yeah, then you see the parabolic curves. No. On, what are they? They're on, not what, parabolic curves. What are they curves. when you change them over? 
So uh, they're all subsets of a class of curves called roulettes. And if you really want to get into like the kind of abstract math of it, then it's if you take a circle and you put a line next to it and you roll the line along the circle without slipping, Mm. and then you track a point that is in some relationship to the line. So it can be on the line. It could be slightly off the line. So some of the shapes end up looking like loops that cross themselves again. Some of them just look kind of like open cups, you know. This Um, explains so much. I have to throw in this tangent. I like popcorn out of air poppers, and I have a big bowl. And I spin the bowl just because I'm weird. And the first piece of popcorn that comes out of the machine falls, <laughs> said Melissa Levick, falls on the popcorn bowl. And then I'm like a cat. I, ch- I have this urge to grab it, and it's really hard. It's just going around in a circle. And I'm like, there's something about I'm in a stationary frame, and it's on a rotating frame. So I'm trying to imagine, because it's literally just a circle that I'm trying to catch with my stupid fingers. But were you able to take that knowledge of figuring out, okay, I understand the curve. Does that help you when you go back up into the harness? Like, are you able to, like, learn to, and you're nodding silently, like, are you able to catch them or? Yeah, that was the whole challenge, right? That's what the art form is, is how do you throw the ball to the place where it's convenient to catch? Right, which is exactly and, what juggling is, right? Which is exactly I'm, what I'm juggling like, is. Three ball juggling is all you do is toss this up and like catch it over here. How hard is that? <laughs> if you, <laughs> if your throw is good, then the catch is easy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I, um, so what I think is so interesting about this aspect of the of the experience, all of it, was what I think is interesting. Sorry, <laughs> was that it started out with me not believing in the curves. Then I saw the video of the curves, and I said, oh, the curves are real. Then I started physically playing with them and exploring the math at the same time. (laughs) And so sometimes the physical experimentation would lead me to want to find a solution in the mathematics. And sometimes doing the math would say, oh, wait, there's this little thing in there. Can you go and find it with your body? And so one of the types of things that you can that I found was uh, what I refer to as a cusp. And that's where you throw the ball and it comes in toward the middle, stops, changes direction, and comes back oh, out. Oh, because the rule is folded, like it, the tangents are like, so parallel? If you, or, if you yeah. think about the circle and line example, this is when the point is right on the line, right? So the point comes in, touches the circle, and then mm. goes out the other side. <laughs> and, um, and it's actually an involute in that case is the, is the mathematical structure that it is. But that is as different from earth-based juggling as you can get, right? Like something that comes towards your center, stops, changes direction, and speeds up while it goes away. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you're so you're manipulating. Oh, that's that's bonkers. And you know what? I it's that level of complexity is. I mean, when you watch the video, the video is like, okay, that's amazing. But there's so much information packed into what you're doing into that analog experiment. Like, do you think someone can? I'm thinking the answer is no. Do you think someone can learn, or or does this this has to be? learned via embodied experimentation you're going to have to to learn how to to deal with the spinning to learn you have to go through all those steps you have to just do them there's no way that you can like understand it conceptually and that would be alone would be enough you know i think so this is 
consistent with some of my other uh, works over the last number of years, which are finding ways to express to other people uh, how I see the world, which is very much an integration of physics and embodied experience. And what I hope this does at the minimum is causes people to ask one more question than they had asked previously about the way life is in space or about why the ball moves in that way. I mean, if you came away from this just saying, oh, balls move in straight lines in weightlessness, most people have learned something, mm-hmm. right? If you go to the next step and say, in the rotating frame, it's affected by the Coriolis and centrifugal forces, that's another step, right? If it's the human body can spin around this axis, Wait, why is it that the human body spins around? Right, there's why, it just. And why any, are car wheels so easy, right? Well, you just learn because that's you're spinning around your primary moment. That's awesome. Sorry. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's like any way to stimulate the conversation and to stimulate curiosity about this relationship is really what my mission and is because, like, math and physics didn't just pop out of nowhere. All of it (laughs) did come. It it did come from observation of the natural environment. And math and physics classes are so separated from that that it's just a shame (laughs) that that, that it's like the only reason people aren't getting it is because it's being spoken in a language that they don't understand, not that it is a topic that they don't understand. The number of people who are good at math is way larger than the number of people who think that they're good at math. Mm. And I really just want to help open that doorway a little bit more. And the opportunity to do it through an artistic work is just makes it even better. Because who, yeah, who doesn't want to go to art right? like class? That's really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who doesn't want to go to art class or the theater and like get your math lesson, right? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I got to go to art class and get my physics credit, please. I used to be a teaching assistant for the entry-level physics courses. I mean, <laughs> that was like the biggest thing that we did was try to make the material engaging. And it's like, yeah, F equals MA. All right, it's just a bunch of math on the chalkboard. And it's hard to make these things really connect with, it's hard to make it so that the people looking at it find it to connect to their lived experience. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, there are so many threads. Here's the moment where I said it's a little like I have a fit, and what I'm doing is going, oh my goodness, where do we go next? All right, I'm thinking, uh, I know a bunch of people who are going to listen to this are going to be hanging themselves from scaff sets in their backyard. <laughs> We're going to need a disclaimer. Wh- what do you think? All right, everybody who just heard all that, what? And I love that you actually half answered this question already by saying, I'm trying to create questions. I'm trying to create people like to think on their own. And that's, I, I have a big stick in the ground about, I just want people to like hear me ask a question and go, huh? And then go off. Like I, I'm not claiming to have any answers to anything. Just take the question and go run with your inquisit, your, your curiosity. So if somebody is like going, okay, this is really interesting. What are some things that they could go explore like, right now because it's, no people don't have a harness and, and a glass table are there things that are maybe more in plain sight that we're missing um and like i have some ideas but i don't want to poison the well but do you see what i'm asking for like are there yeah i think one element that often gets overlooked is the fact that your body's center of mass can move around and that it is not a fixed place even dancers will say, oh, my center is here mm. and, you know, put their Dantian, Dantian or something, right? Somewhere between their belly button and the bottom of their torso or something. 
But that's just not true. If you hold your arms up above your head and, and you hold your, your knees, tuck your knees. It's got to come up to your middle of your chest, right? Yeah, exactly. And so in my in my simulation, I found that you could move it about 12 inches for, for my body type. I could move it 12 inches up and 12 inches forward, which is a lot of variety. And so you can experiment with that by balancing on things or or just really tuning into the fact that it is what can happen and then laying on your back and trying to move your knees around and your arms around and everything. And I think even that layer of insight will really help to facilitate understanding more about how does walking work? How, mm-hmm. how does running work? Why does it feel a certain way when you're on the swing set and you extend your legs out and you pull them back, right? What you're doing in that case is moving your center of mass forward and backward. And then because you got a little lag with the pendulum, right? You already gave us our pendulum lesson during this. Then, (laughs) uh, you know, you change the (laughs) torque a little bit so that you can get some movement forward and some movement backward. And um, all of that comes from just having more information about where the center of mass of your body is. Hmm. So when you were when you gave us a lesson, about, my mind flashed to, I have a memory, and I'm not actually sure if this is a real memory or if it's just like cobbled together. I think the memory people would say all memories are cobbled together; they're all false. But I feel like I distinctly remember in a preschool setting, so like before kindergarten, like daycare mixed with school, having some random person, it's probably like some 17 year old person, show me, but actually explain how to work a swing set. And, and they were like, okay, go like this, do this. I mean, do that. I think they even probably said your center, you know, and like they just explained the geometry and it's like, oh, what? And then you just, there's a couple, I'm like rocking back and forth like an idiot. You just figure out like there's that little thing that just unlocks it. So I, I'm glad that you pointed out those, you know, it's like almost obvious once you hear it, like, oh, move my limbs. Yeah, it moves my center. But like those simple things can really unlock whole new like you were describing several in your story where this relatively simple thing then unlocks this whole new way of thinking about it has like, I don't know anything about your, like your hobbies or anything, but have you found that having learned, I'm going to say learn to space juggle because those are two words that you just never get to put together. So having learned to space juggle, do you find that like, I'm looking for like really weird connections, like this music sound different or, or like, did you suddenly get better at, uh, I don't know, uh, composing music or like has it has it popped out in other ways in your life so i have learned a lot more about some branches of mathematics that i had wanted to learn about so that is one thing that most people don't compare to music <laughs> but Ooh, I, I would compare math to music okay thank you yeah so i i comfortably say that's a that's a link that's happened for me is just looking at linear algebra and saying, this isn't really the best thing for rotations and starting to learn about... (laughs) Amen! (laughs) I hate linear algebra. (laughs) Yeah, well, it can be okay for a lot of stuff, and most people know it who know algebras, right? right? Uh, Right. But, like, complex algebra and geometric algebra are way better for this stuff, and so I really have put a lot of time in on those now, and I'm really happy that I've built those skill sets. The central theme of this topic of like watch the piece while spinning with me right is that the balls go in straight lines when they're you know in the inertial frame the non-rotating frame and then they go in these curves when they're rotating frame right and what's really happening is that both of those things are completely true Mm. And so it gives us an opportunity to have an embodied observation 
which gives us a pretty important philosophical construct at this time in American history, which is that something as simple as the trajectory of a ball can change depending upon what your perspective is. And if something as simple as a ball's trajectory can be influenced by your perspective, then I think you can understand the entire universe of extensions which I am implying by saying that everything you experience is shifted by your perspective and that it is a really important time for a lot of us to kind of understand that and that there's a lot of stories that are being told that we don't experience that we don't understand and they still can be 100% true, true and they are somebody's real lived experience and we need to be compassionate about that and and understand that it's not it's it's real the ball is moving in a straight line and it is moving a curve it's real my personal mission is to spread better conversations to create understanding and compassion in the world i'm just like oh my god more of that do you have any thoughts on I think it was in the recording. We were talking, you mentioned giving people a question, the next question or a first question. And that, that's a, in, in my brain, in my experience, that's a common tool that I use. If I want to try and spread curiosity, which I feel leads, if, you're, if you follow your curiosity, you wind up learning compassion. I'm thinking, okay, it's pretty clear how if you can get people interested in a question that you ask them, then that that tickles their curiosity. So you can spread curiosity by giving them a question. You have to give them the right question. They have to be in the right place. Like, there's a, a knack to it. But that, that makes sense. Are there, this is not easy, are there ways or ideas or things that I could do or anybody listening could do to give people the seed for them to understand that duality that you were just describing? Mm. <laughs> Sorry, this is how Craig's brain works. And I don't, I don't know if there's an answer to that question, but... I always am thinking of like, well, if I see a model that works here, what would be the next dimension or how, how can I use a similar model or, you know, like the way you add complex to real arithmetic, it's a whole different thing becomes possible. I don't know if you have any thoughts on how do we, so how do we do more of that? Yeah, well, I can say what I do is more listening and believing, you know, when I think about kind of like, where's this really important? It's in conversations with other people and it's in respecting other people's experiences and input because people have really insightful things to share with us <laughs> that we can like totally not hear sometimes, yes. or at least I can totally not hear it. You yes. know, it's like, like, oh yeah, you know, I think about it two days later or whatever. And I'm just like, wow that was a perfect thing to say at that mm, moment and right. I absolutely missed it. So that, that's really how I'm handling the way this plays into my social life. Hmm. And yeah, I guess it's like, I yeah, I don't really feel comfortable giving that type of advice to other people. That's yeah. perfectly fine. You, you can be like, <laughs> no, Craig, go away. Because I, I think you're, what you did, uh, I was going to say what you did to yourself, which makes it sound negative, but what you did to yourself through all the analog experimentation you like discovered this, I was going to say you discovered this truth, but I was going to say this truth that there's more than one truth, but you discovered this principle or this idea of this duality or, or more 
of truth. So like that's clearly one way that you can do it, but I'm pretty sure that we're not going to talk anybody into spending all that time just by listening. There might be one or two people who spend all the time. And that was just my, my little hope was like, oh, if there's, I mean, I'm thinking the first thing you could do would be to go to spacejuggling.com and watch all the videos and you'll just be sitting there the like... Thespacejuggler.com. Sp- sorry, spacejuggler.com. Thespacejuggler.com. The <laughs> my bad. <laughs> uh, my second biggest fear is going up people's domain names. My biggest fear is getting their names wrong. But the videos are... I- I'll-, I'll confess, I watched the videos and not just today. I watched them a while ago. And I thought they were really awesome. I had no clue what I was looking at. Like, I, I looked at them, and I'm like, wow, oh, that's amazing. And then I you can see what's going on. And I'm like, that's really cool. But my brain doesn't see the math of the curves. And it doesn't see, like, I go, yeah, I mean, clearly what's going on here is, depending on the reference frame, different thing. But, like, you don't, because I didn't experience it, like, I wasn't in the experience as opposed to watching the experience. I didn't get the like. I didn't get the lesson. I didn't understand that. So I, I was just hoping, like, whoa, how can we jump that shark? But good. Yeah, and so the videos that you're talking about are probably like the first ten videos or so that I released, which um, were really building up to the International Juggling Association competition, which was in July of 2021. And what I was trying to do with that series of videos was just introduce the idea to kind of like give you the little pieces so that you can start putting it together, you know? Um, Because like you said, you like giving people a question and then just seeing (laughs) where they go with it, right? And and I knew that if I just said it all at once, it's just too much. Like when I show people this, if they're a juggler, you know, <laughs> they, just, they just grab their hair and scream. What? Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. They're just really upset. <laughs> you know, that's um, not fair. Yeah, or half brain dead, or you know, it, it's just really it's 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 complicated to try to envision it. So I wanted to get get people mentally ready for that, and then by the time that this uh, podcast comes out, I will have released some of my next works, which do dig into the details of the math and um, do have a little bit more story to it and do have like behind the scenes filming that mm. shows kind of what happened to make this happen. And that's kind of another layer of what I want it to do is to just show what uh, you can accomplish and, you know, to hopefully be encouraging that like, no matter what idea you think you can have, like it can probably go further. You can probably do more with it. You can probably do it a little bit better. You can probably bring in a friend who can do it a little better than you. You know what I mean? There's, yeah. And since I've been a performer for 20 years now, when I started seeing what I had here, it was like, okay, I'm, I think I'm ready to really like go in on this one and, and make as nice as a piece as I could. And so I, I hired a bunch of my friends to do the parts that I, yeah. How do so I do this without killing myself? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> follow my face. What do you think now? I, I love to, I love to just, I love line segments, grab two dots, draw a line between them and then throw it to you as a question. So I just staple together two ideas, put a question mark on the end and give it back to you. So there's the you that, that I'll say like maybe 10 or 15 years into the performance you when you're like, I'm going to say at the top of your game, like you're, you're really into it. You know what you're doing. What do you think now when you look back at that person and you, now you have the perspective to see there's like, oh, there, you know, hey, Adam, there's this whole other aspect of what do you want to call it? Juggling or movement in zero G. What do you think now when you look back and, and see who you were and what you thought at the time when you were juggling or performing or doing circus? 
so you're asking prior to spit the creation yeah, before of the creation certainly. yeah you know it it's really funny because I wasn't planning on doing space juggling in this way. I was planning on preparing myself to do it on a parabolic flight and that I was just practicing. But then the pandemic happened while I was practicing and it was just like, well, what am I going to do? Going deep. I'm, I'm making progress on this. I might as well just keep going, you know? Right. And, um, and because, so my my circus career is usually doing about 60 gigs a year performing for somebody either stage shows or roaming or um whatever and you know that's not like full time but i've also been in college that whole time uh, or most of that time in the first couple of years you know early 2000s it's like there wasn't nothing like a circus scene that there is now you know it it wasn't like i was doing gigs for 500 dollars a gig or something you know i was running around the country, living in a van, trying to learn all the skills I could as a, (laughs) you know, 20 year old. (laughs) So, um, it's, it's funny because the pandemic opened up the space to let me have the time to do this. And had the pandemic not happened, I don't know if I would have done it as well. And if I would have, would I have figured out as many details as I have now figured out, um, I know for sure that if you're trying to do a performance piece like this in a parabolic flight or in space, it is not the way to just go and do it there. Building it ahead of time, taking the time to figure it out, to get all the details, that is definitely the way to do it. And and what I ended up making, because those parabolic flights are only 20 to 30 seconds long, I couldn't have made what I've made on a parabolic flight. So doing it in this analog environment gave me the time to really be in it and to be all the way through it and to go away from it and to ponder on it for a week and then come back to it and then go away and come back to it. And even if you're an astronaut, even if you're, you know, in space for six months or whatever, you don't have time you know, to like go away and come back and go away and come back and like have that durational experience with a thought channel you know and so um so i guess it's like i'm kind of frustrated that i had this idea since 2016 and i didn't start working on it until 2019 in sincerity but the skills that i was building were necessary and they were keeping me paid which is always one of the things most of us are looking for and and yeah, and I, I think I did really good work in the circus prior to the development of this. Um, so I don't know. It's weird looking at it and just being like, okay, I'm happy I've, I'm in this step of my artistic and embodied evolution. And hopefully this step in evolution is helping other people either now or in the future to be capable of asking different questions. Because, you know, uh, there are things that you can't, unsee once you have seen them and like michael motion is the guy in the labyrinth who is doing the crystal balls Mm -hmm. behind david bowie right like once you've seen that you that can happen you now can you know you now know that can happen and greg kennedy is another guy who does the juggling in a cone and so he has a, a cone that stands around him he rolls balls on the inside of the cone that also like you know i don't know if i could accept rolling a ball on a surface 
as juggling if he didn't do that. He hadn't done it first, right? Yeah. So it's like I can't live in a world where that didn't happen. And now we can't live in a world where space juggling didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I don't know how it's going to influence people. And I'm probably never going to find out most, hopefully I'll never find out most of the ways because that means it worked. Yeah, <laughs> right? that it, that we've reached the end. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Flash of, hey, you just, I don't know if you've ever realized this before, you just pointed out in what you were saying that you just made, you just pointed out this connection earlier. We were talking about what does it mean to be human and and we decided that like we're pretty sure that gravity is not a necessary thing and i would say agency is a thing and you just pointed out that you would have thought that throwing ballistics was necessary for juggling and now you're like no actually rolling stuff on things that can be juggling too that's that's the exact parallel like what is the nature of the thing i thought gravity i thought ballistic trajectory i thought these were necessary to be sufficient for the thing and now i've realized no these are not necessary so uh, i'll give you i've been lately i've been doing two first ask two completely different questions and see which one you want to ask most people smash them together what are other things that you think are not necessary to be considered a human or what are things that you consider to be not necessary to be considered juggling neither of which are easy questions I don't. Think. I've spent a lot more time thinking about human. I think so. I'll, I'll unpack that one. Oh, there, uh, okay. Yeah. I don't think hierarchies are necessary for being human. Plus one. And. And I don't mean it to be a test. You can totally be like, "That's all I want to say." <laughs> yeah. Well, I've I've done. Have you you've read uh, much about embodied cognition? Not much, but I've read a little bit. Okay, like metaphors we live by, or something. Yes. Or, yes. I, yeah. I, I, that's the most common one, yeah, probably. Like that skimmed over and read. went, I should read more about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think they do a that that branch of cognitive science just does a great job of kind of trying to nitpick how embodied experience influences our cognitive yes. structures. And and so I have been wondering, like, you know, what are the ways that gravitation sneaks into the ways that we build our concepts, build our categories, build our metaphors, and from that, build our reasons, build our morality, and build our ethics, which an easy one, I think, to pick out would be the uh, the balancing scale as like the scale of justice, right? Yeah. Which was that doing zero G? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. The <laughs> oldest one, right, was found in the Middle East and it's like 1700 BC on a pyramid wall or whatever. And at that time, they were already using those balancing scales to, you know, to like do commerce and to trade things with other people. But also at that time, they were already using it mystically or, or spiritually. Yes. Yep. Weigh your soul to determine if you're going to, you know, be eaten or make it into the afterlife. And that is a gravitationally oriented vision of justice. And that same exact metaphor of justice was used by the Greeks and used by the Egyptians and was used by the Romans and was used by the United States. And, you know, it's also easy to compare to, you know, the Code of Hammurabi, the eye for an eye, Mm -hmm. right? That it's like these things are equal and that's what justice means. 
I don't know if that's what justice means. I know that that's what my physical experience in the world leads me to conclude that justice means. Just letting that sit, because I think that's a brilliant observation. Yeah, like, I'm not going to ramble after that. Like, that's that's great. Like, meta, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me. I said before, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for taking the time. It never ceases to amaze me how people that I talk to in the, you know, like I, I give you a headset and I give you a microphone and it says a little bit of gear and done some work with mics so it's not too weird, but it's a weird experience if you have it. Now for me, I'm just like, whatever, hundreds. That like an hour in, an hour and four minutes in, I can ask you something. I'm like, I have no idea what these things are. You know, I'm like visually holding my hands up. I have no idea what these things are, but for some reason, I think if I take these two things and I smash them together and like give it to you, you're not going to throw it on the floor. You're going to go like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And I, I love how when you have a conversation with someone and I could like talk for hours about two people versus three people versus groups, but when you have a conversation with one other person and that conversation happens in an, I'm going to say an open context, like we don't really know each other and, you know, we just assume that I'm not going to show up and, and be weirdo and <laughs> people who know me, well, you're always a weirdo. But that idea of like me holding up something and going, you know, this strikes me as salient at the moment. This idea just popped into my head and, and like, um, what do you think of this? And then you go, I don't know, but that makes me think of this thing over here. And after about an hour, you know, we're talking about things that if we had tried to plot out what we might co-create, just like from an artistic point of view, it's really impossible to imagine. So one of the things I'm thinking is that agency would be one, not gravity, not hierarchy, but there's something about imagination or something about, there's got to be a better word for riffing off of each other, like your idea makes me think of that idea. That's happening, and we touched about this, we, we touched on this earlier about language. There's something of that that happens subconsciously. So, and now I'm okay, how about if I come up with an actual question so Adam can talk? One of the, here's a podcasting trick for anybody listening. People think it's hard to ask questions and they think it's nearly impossible to ask really good questions. It's really easy. I have no clue what I'm doing. All I'm doing is ideas come into my head and I grab them. And when I get two that are really neat, I just like wonder, I wonder if those are related. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm using my, I'm intentionally, and I, I do this on purpose. I'm intentionally taking my intuition, which I don't know how to actually grab a hold of and use as a tool. And I'm just like, I'm like cranking the intuition pump. Like, I don't know, let's let it go around. Pay attention to what Adam is saying. I'm not trying to imagine the next question. I'm just like letting my intuition generate salient ideas. And then I give them back to you. And there's a whole bunch of art. Like, you know, how do you do the interview thing, which I suck at. But do you find that you have the chance to have these kinds of conversations with other people? Like, do you get these opportunities or I'm not fishing for a compliment or is there something magical about being in a podcast space? I'm not fishing for, you know, this podcast, but like, is there something about like you and I have sort of agreed that we're sort of ignoring the world except for maybe swatting some mosquitoes and we're, we're ignoring the traffic sounds and we're not, you know, we're focused on each other. So is, do you think there's something special about the audio space? We can call it podcasting space. And uh, no would be like, yeah, I also encounter this, you know, in partner dance or like, and I'm just wondering about how we're doing what we're currently doing when we're creating this conversation. Yeah. It's funny. I'm reading thought in the act right now. Are you familiar with this? I have not heard of nor read that. Oh no. Another book. 
Oh, yeah. Go, go, yeah. go. <laughs> this is one of those dancer books where they are developing language while you're reading the book. Ooh. Really dense. Super dense. Yeah. And um, in it, the first chapter is kind of has the topic that, like, sometimes we treat language as if it's not really the thing when we're describing dance, right? That it's like the language is an afterthought. The language is a, a lens. The language is, you know, this like thing that is different from the yeah. creative process. But that language can be a continuation of the process of creation. And so when I think about this conversation it's definitely unique and we're definitely like reaching a lot of topics that i like to think about and i like to work on but that i don't always get to discuss clearly because they take an hour to yeah, get to that I definitely point. haven't hit anything and, you're like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> and and it's nice to to not think about this as a just a reflection of space juggling or of the work that I've done, but that this is one of the steps of the process. Like if, right, he who learns and doesn't teach is a thief, right? That's a good one. <laughs> like, yes, I heard that one ages. Yes, that's a yeah, great one. Yeah. And so this is that part of that step, which is making it accessible. And this was something Kitsu told me when we were talking one time, she was just like, Adam, if you're going to do space art, like you have to bring it back to people. Don't just take it to space. Like it has to come back to the people here. And I think, I'm sorry if I am now going off too far on a tangent. I <laughs> no think such that thing. this is all tangents. <laughs> I'm not in support of an earth centric vision for the future of humanity. I think that earth is important, but I also think that, we need to look at colonies. It's clearly fragile. It's clearly singularly unique as far as we can tell so far. Like, it's very special. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I'm, yeah. I, I love it here. Earth is awesome. <laughs> no, um, I meant like it's dangerous to rely on this one thing. Like if you've seen uh, the, if you've seen this, for everybody listening, if you've ever seen space photos, the astronauts on the space station love to take photos the thickness of the atmosphere is this teeny tiny little fraction and everything that we know and love is is in that little slice and it doesn't take much to mess that up as we're running the experiment currently and things like asteroid impacts and all sorts of stuff i i meant like yeah this is precious and the fact that we are re currently relying on it 100 percent for everything our our culture like all of humanity and all of our history is dependent on this one fragile thing but now i wrecked your train of thought sorry <laughs> yeah, I was saying that, you know, we are going to be expand. We, it is not inevitable that we expand into the un the universe. This is not inevitable. It can totally go wrong, right? It can totally not happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? Sixty years ago, the moon program happened, and then yeah, yeah. the space sh station was built and the shuttle was built. But it's like we haven't had another time until now. Yeah. That was like it is now, and that's why it's so important that we do the stuff now because SpaceX is ready 
you know, Blue Origin is ready, Virgin Galactic is ready, Boeing is ready. You know what yeah. I mean? Like the whole yeah. it's, NASA is China, ready. China, like, China is, is, hey, is ready. Props to China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, China, go back to the moon. Yeah. And then brought then they brought samples back too. Sorry, we're gonna just like space geek out now. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, you're right. It's um, not inevitable. We could choose or things could hardly could hardly wrong in the bigger picture and we'd end up with not having the opportunity. Yeah. And so if we can make it there, people who are living in other altered gravitational environments you know, we'll go through this process of a speciation, which we had talked about a little bit, where, you know, there's some divergence as a result of environment. And it's really important for us to, I think, be treating them like like parents treat mm. children with the intention of them growing into people, not like parents treat children with the intention of subservience. Subservience or <laughs> holding know? them back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That like the more that they can grow the more that we can learn about what it means to be human. And it doesn't, the cool thing is you don't even have to apply philosophical stimulus in order to have those types of changes be reflected back to us because they're natural. The embodied experience that you have in the world and the way that it influences not just what you think, but what you're capable of thinking arises naturally. It's not forced. And so having people go and live in other environments is going to teach us things that we could never have imagined. Like, how are they going to think about math? How are they going to think about relationships? How are they going to think about society? How are they going to think about money? we We can't know, and that's the only natural way to see it happen. And I, I'd like to see that. I think that'd be awesome. <laughs> I would like to see that too. Yes, yeah. please. More of that. Whew. All right. So you don't know what's an hour and 13 minutes. Yeah. I think, I'm trying to think, well, this is where I, I, I get petulant, but I don't want to stop ever. <laughs> but I always remind myself, I've had, I, I mean, I can't think of a single conversation I had that I walked away from like, oh, that wasn't time well spent. Um, so I know that every time I get excited and love one of these experiences, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more of these to come. I wonder if all right, I'll, I'll serve you a softball, and this is kind of like a go-to thing. Like, was there anything that you wanted to talk about, or, or you wanted to ask me, or you have questions like about Crazy Craig or whatever that that you were thinking in the time, like, oh, he's coming over. Like the things that you wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten to, or that you wanted to ask, or and it can be like I mean, any random like you know podcast role reversal. It can be why do you do what you do or whatever. I don't want to turn into the Craig show, but yeah, you well, you know, I've been. <laughs> I've been curious in the nature of the work that I've been describing, right? And, um, you know, you come from a very different embodied background. You were mentioning martial arts and parkour. And and I I have done scuba diving and I've done martial arts and stuff like that. But um, I know I'm sure your your experience with those things is different. (laughs) And, you know, I'm really curious that now that you have a little more insight about the types of questions that I've been asking. And, you know, these are questions that I think some, a lot of people, especially physics minded people come across at some point, you know, that's like, Oh yeah, I wonder what space circus would look like. Okay. Whatever that's done. And then, you know, they move on. It's like that you give it five um, seconds and you go. <laughs> the scene of Ender's game, they do that. You yeah. know, that to me, that's a similar, like, well, somebody, Orson Scott, who wrote that? Clark? Yeah, Orson Scott, Orson Scott Card wrote yeah. that. And so he was clearly thinking like that. And I think he had a physics background. Yeah. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. So I'm curious now with your embodied background, you know, like what, what questions would you be asking 
if you had the opportunity to go on a parabolic flight. You know, now... <laughs> My brain was already going like, wait, it only costs how much? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. What questions would I ask? Yeah, like, okay, let's say in three months, you're going to go on a parabolic flight. How are you going to prepare in a way that's different from what I've prepared? Let's, you know, let's just say oh, you can do everything question. I did, right? Yeah. That we'll give, give you that or, or not. Oh, well, my, my first thought is partners, right? So my first, this is always my first thought is how complicated can I make whatever it is? I mess it up by overcomplicating it. So my first thought was the way that the, the, you like, I'm going to follow, right? So the gateway that I see that you went through was you took something that is relatively straightforward, but you... Removed, parent, removed boundaries and, and went in like in a different direction. Haha, <laughs> punny. So my next thought was, all right, what happens if instead of trying to juggle inanimate objects, not juggling people, but what would happen if I tried to find, first I'd have to go embody, learn all of what you did. If I had another person, so like you and I both, like what would it be if we learned to, I don't know what it would be because it wouldn't be space juggling. It would be something else, but dance or whatever and maybe people have tried to do dance but i can't imagine anybody's tried to do dance or maybe acrobatics or maybe um like i'm thinking of like aerial silks which is like a really gravity oriented thing and i've seen like spectacular cirque du soleil aerial silks demos and i'm like yeah what if there was no gravity like juggling didn't make sense without gravity until we saw the guy roll the balls on the cone. So I'm thinking like, all right, I'd, I'd want to try and add a layer of complexity, which may be a bad idea, but what would happen if I was able to go to the flight with the same knowledge that you had? And then beforehand we try to co-create, all right, we're going to two person juggle, or we're going to try and what happens if we're in counter rotating, you know, frames, can we interact at all? Like, is there any interaction that's possible or do we just wind up every time you move, you're in, you know, like it becomes collision or what about like, Oh, well, if you're going to have a 17 segment model, what happens if you have a 35 segment model, which is two human beings always in contact can like, I, I know what the primary moment would be. It would be probably hold feet because we need long limbs but you know hold some limb and then we make a giant starfish of two bodies rotating what what could we do so that's my first instinct is to go with like the you know you've gone to first principles which is like a physics geek term for like you took it apart and went what is actually happening what is the model and then my instinct is like well if you went that way what if we go the other way so my first instinct is like what happens if two people try to interact and i'm sure nasa has a lot of like nuts and boltsy watch your head sort of interaction mechanics and when you go through doorways we go through head first so we can see like those kinds of things but i mean bigger than that so that'd be my random diatribe of an answer if that's have you had those thoughts is that yeah so oh, me okay, and good. me and tony <laughs> them the my partner who's an mfa dancer she her, her and i did go on a parabolic flight together and we did practice in pools and in aerial harnesses and things to experience <laughs> pushing and pooling. And even though we had done all those environments, there is nothing like being in weightlessness and pooling on another person and feeling them pull on you just as much as you're pulling on them. That your entire being is engaged in this mm. one way or another and... You know, you can feel that when you're on the ground and you're lifting somebody or something, you know, like 
uh, you can feel the I'm channel gonna, of I'm going to push back and say there are not many people who, I'm not like a humongous dude, but I'm definitely off the bell curve on size. Most of the people that I encounter are smaller than me. And I'm like, please don't come up and flying tackle me to prove that you're bigger than me. But there, there, there's one very famous parkour guy who is my size. He's a little bit heavier, but a little bit shorter. And, and when we play together, it's like, you ever see dogs, like in a dog park, they're like ramming into each other. And it, that's a place where I've got a taste of what happens when the environment interacts with me as much as I'm interacting with it. So for me, that would be a really unique experience because most of my experiences, yeah, when I push the other things move. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that aspect of is different Tony body the, is sizes. Is Tony the same approximate size or is she I've shorter? got about 30 pounds on her. Yeah. But we're about the same height. Yeah. yeah. It's just interesting. Yet another interesting connection. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good thought. Thank you. I, um, you know, <laughs> when we started this, I said one of my favorite things is is learning from the person, people asking the questions, and you really, uh, yeah, that that last one really got me. Got me oh, thinking. Well, outstanding. I'm I'm always afraid that people can be like that guy was a moron and take their headphones <laughs> off and say get out of here. <laughs> so I, yeah, imposter syndrome <laughs> runs deep. I think that I'm. I overthink. Uh, so one of the urges that I have when I'm creating these things is I try to stay partly out of the conversation, which is really hard to do. And partly it's I, I like look at the recorder and I'm paying attention to the tech, but I'm also trying to think, you know, I'm imagining people behind me, particular people that I know of certain personalities asking questions. And so sometimes that distracts me and I, I tend to get like yanked out of my experience of the conversation. And that can be really jarring for me. And I'm like thinking like, well, what would somebody want to know? And I'm like, sometimes I, I kind of like schizophrenically bop back and forth between just like totally being zoned in and then I kind of go off in my own place. So I'm just trying to think, instead of going off in my own place, where else do I want to go in the last few minutes that we probably should, before we should stop? What about, oh, uh, books. I don't, well, I don't make a thing out of always asking people about books because if you get somebody who doesn't read it, it kind of comes across as like a, you know, oh, you don't read. But clearly, <laughs> you're reading. If somebody's listening and they're going, wait, I mean, all the books, like, we'll get the names and they'll be in the show in the episode notes. But are there any other things that you've read that might not be, like Musgrave's commentary? That's a beautiful thing. Musgrave, he, he must have, the story must have a, a, a biography or an autobiography at this point. But, like, are there other connections that you've stumbled across that other people could go, you know, follow on their own? Like, um, you know, look up this person's dance or look up, you know, this particular Cirque artist or look up this, you know, like, I don't know, are there other book connections that you think of that people might want to follow? Yeah. And just on the book note, you haven't seen it yet, but people will have seen it by the time this podcast happens, is my, my film's uh, Dreaming of Space Struggling, which is like, it's a short film that kind of has a theatrical aspect of it so that people who wouldn't sit and watch five minutes of juggling will probably sit and watch, watch. this video because it, you know, says a little more. And um, the themes in it are if you read books and if you practice and if you do math, then you're capable of having these types of dreams. <laughs> you know? Serendipity. Have you so. heard the phrase "everything is figure outable"? Like, I, like, and and the idea is just if you look at something and go, "Huh," whatever that is that made you go, "Huh," it's you can figure that out. You can, you can, and and it's like books and questions and math and okay, sorry, keep going. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> books. <sighs> so I, I'm a strong book pusher. Uh, I really think people should read books. And um, I could give you a whole list of book questions if you want to rattle off answers. Yeah, <laughs> biggest book you own, like by mass. 
by mass. You know, I have a dictionary that uh, that has a, a really excellent set. It has, it has the word. It has the first time that the word was used mm-hmm. in English right. and the you know when that was and then the definitions uh, and I really like that version of the, the dictionary um, but then also biggest books on my bookshelf that I read regularly would be like um, Philosophy in the Flesh by Lakoff and Johnson that's an embodied cognition book yeah and, um, I'm like whatever my head on that one keep going <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I think that's the thickest book that I read Book, you, book or books, two or three, if you can think of them, that you've given away most often. I'm a big fan of I don't lend books. I only give books. I, give, I say, here, I have this book. And I never yep. expect it back. Yep. Um, Stardance by Spider and Gene Robinson. If you read this book, you will understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Spider Robinson is a sci-fi author and a folk singer, and Gene Robinson was a dancer. And they wrote the book together, and they did a just fabulous job of describing meaning in movement and also connecting that with dancing in space, which is really, you know, pretty, pretty ideal for a guy <laughs> wow, like me. Wow, look at that connection. <laughs> so, so I give that away. And then also um, Diaspora by Greg Egan. That's, have, have you read this? Uh, I've read excerpts from it. I know it's, it's like it's on my list. I need to read Okay, good. Read. Yes. Book you've read the most number of times. Like I've read this book cover to cover. Stardance. Stardance? Yeah. Um, any other ones jump out as well? I've also read this one a bunch of times. Yeah. Also Diaspora. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like lobbing ping pong balls at you to like yeah. see what books come out of your head. Yeah. If I mean, if you're t- talking about books that I've read, like technical books, the book that I keep out the most... <laughs> CRC tables. Is <laughs> <laughs> That's a physics joke. Yeah. No, I, I have some, some physics books that I read the most often, but I, they're like, I do um, mag- nuclear magnetic resonance, so I like make oh, I was atoms spin. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, those are the books that I reference the most, and also cryogenic like helium books, but yeah. most folks would not be interested in that. But if you're mildly mathematically inclined, then I think Geometric Algebra for Physicists by Doran and Lassenby is a really excellent approach to geometric algebra that, yeah, it they really did it the way physicists do it. I've read, I've read other books by mathematicians and by computer scientists and by engineers, and this one, they nailed, nailed it. it for physicists. So if you're a person who thinks about the world in an embodied way, you know, which I think is what physics is doing is being like, we're using math that's relevant to life experience. Hmm. Then this would be the way to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. And then also a lot of other books by Greg Egan are the ones that I read the most actually Hmm. Schiltz ladder and permutation city. And yeah, I'm I'm just like, Oh my God, there's like 12 books here. I have to go read now. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, as much as I hate to say it, <laughs> I'm going to say. And of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. Presence and patience and perseverance. I didn't, I didn't really like get presence until I think I started performing. Um, but I think that's what I'm selling when people watch me do things is it's like, what's it like to be a guy who's really now, like all the way right now? Like there's not another thought in my head. There's not another movement in my body. There, you know, it's, it's right now. And, um, and I really 
since I realized that have valued that deeply in like what is it beyond just skills that practice brings to the rest of my life. I always hate to say anything after people say really great things, but it kind of falls to me to say thank you so much, Adam, for taking the time. My distinct pleasure. Thank you. This this was a really fun conversation, and I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to meet you and, uh, and to share such an awesome conversation together. Yeah.